Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, Ryder Todd Smith, and today we're joined by John Scholl of the California Joint Powers Insurance Authority. John, welcome to PCEO Report. Well, thank you, Ryder. Glad to be here. Looking forward to this. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad you could take the time to visit with us today. I know things are very busy for you, as always, over at the Authority, as we like to refer to it. But I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us a little bit. So, as always, we are covering some of the more esoteric worlds of local government, and we need to explain who the heck we're talking to and what we're all about. So, could you take a couple moments here and just explain what is the California Joint Powers Insurance Authority? Sure, glad to. Uh, The California JPIA is a self-insurance pool for cities and other local governments, mostly providing municipal functions. Uh, A self-insurance pool for liability, workers' comp, property, uh, pretty much much everything other than uh, employee benefits uh, that cities might need for uh, protecting them from, you know, claims because somebody tripped on the sidewalk or an employee gets injured. Uh, needing to deal with the workers' comp uh, system. We handle all that for the cities. So, John, uh, does every city in California have insurance? Well, yeah, most of them will have some sort of uh, risk management program with insurance. They'll, uh, larger, larger cities will typically self-insure. Uh, for example, Long Beach probably uh, has a $2 million self-insured retention, and then they buy excess insurance above that. Um, uh, other large cities might be in a pool of other of large cities, but most of the small to medium-sized cities are in some sort of a self-insurance pool like ours, um, where they will um, they'll have some sort of a retention, but for the most part, the pool is providing them with the with the protection. It's it's typically much more expensive for a small city to try to buy insurance on the open market, um, and you're certainly subject to the the hardening and softening of the insurance market and the cycles of the of the site of the of the market, which can be you know, very challenging for the stability of the funding for the for the small to medium sized cities. Just because the cost of insurance are going to vary so much that one year their insurance could be affordable and the next it could go up twenty or thirty percent. Exactly, and I'm, I mean that happens in some pools as well, depending on how they have funded themselves. But um, you know, as an individual agency. Uh, being self-insured or buying insurance, they're they're going to definitely have, if they have a bad year, it could be a really bad year for them. Or if they have a good year, it, it may be a good year for them, but the insurance company may not respect that as much and give them the discount. So uh, it's, that's kind of, kind of how it plays out. Right. So I guess a couple of key terms here too, just to make sure we're all on the same page. I think particularly for uh, people who are newer to public policy, say newer council members. Um, so this idea, the general idea with any insurance, right, is that you take aggregate actions and things that have gone wrong and try to level out the volatility to any single entity by spreading those costs out a bunch of people. So the idea of insurance is generally to moderate the one person impact on something and spread those costs out. Uh, in insurance pools, like the one that the authority runs, is aggregating together a bunch of different uh, small and mid-sized uh, government agencies, most of them cities, and achieving that goal while also layering in uh, some additional additional risk management tools. Is that an effective description? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good description of it. I mean, we we came out of a smaller organization and have grown to be 123 public agencies today. Um, and one of the reasons we grow is because we want to spread the risk further. Um, you add good members with good loss history and the existing members will ultimately, in theory, pay less because they are now spreading risk across a, a broader spectrum. And it also makes, you know, we buy excess and reinsurance for the pool and it makes when we are a larger population that they are looking at, um, they see that as a better risk, the carriers do. So it, it makes those costs come down as well, relatively speaking to the market. So there is advent advantages to your membership, member agencies, 
um, in terms of scaling up the organization and, and being in a bigger pool up until the point that you end up adding members who are maybe less diligent about risk management and avoiding uh, insurance issues, in which case it starts to become costly. Right. And that's that's one of the most important things that we do is look at the prospective member from the perspective of the existing member to ensure that a prospective member is doing it right, that they understand it, that they um, really have the right risk management culture so that we are adding good members that will add to the success of the pool rather than possibly. I mean, there's always the possibility, even a good member will possibly have a bad loss. Sure. But you, you want those who consistently tend to show a commitment to risk management. And so risk management, I feel like risk management is a term that, I mean, I started hearing maybe 20 years ago, maybe because I just wasn't hanging out in the right circle. So maybe this term has existed around a lot longer than that. But the general idea here is to take things that usually cost the city from a threat of a from a lawsuit or some other incident and try to mitigate those things from happening, right? So uh, anything you can do to avoid having to get attorneys involved in stuff, anything you can do to help people not get hurt, or anything you can do to take risks that are inherent with the operating of a city and try to shift those responsibilities and risk costs onto another entity are kind of all part and parcel of good risk management behavior. Is that a, also a fair description? Well, I, I think it is a fair description. And I, I think I would, I would uh, color that a little bit differently with the idea that you know risk management is about looking at exposures and then dealing with those exposures. So, you know, we're not trying to say uh, as risk managers you shouldn't do that. We're trying to say how can you best protect yourself and the participants when you're doing that. So, for example, if um, you build a playground, you want I mean Part of a playground is creating risks. You want children to grow developmentally by seeing a risk, you know, seeing the monkey bar and they have to jump from this one, or, you know, swing from this one to that one. You want to create risks that are something they can achieve and move and grow from, as opposed to hazards where, yeah, You've made that the 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 bars on that uh, uh, horizontal uh, ladder are too far apart for the little kids that you've put it in their playground. Now you've created a hazard because they can't reach from bar to bar. That's what risk management is about: identifying that exposure is a hazard versus that's a a risk that they can get through. You know, so that's sort of a a, a real fundamental recognition of you know hazard versus risk from the city's perspective or from a, a public agency's perspective it truly is about okay there are certain things that we need to do cities provide streets people drive on the streets you want to make sure that you've got you know proper lane markings you've got proper signage and then you're trying to prevent accidents you know mishaps um and so you're out and inspecting and you're making sure that things are going the way they're supposed to and that, you know, the intersection that on paper looks really good. Actually, there's something that's a little squirrely about it. So you want to take a look to see if there's a way to improve upon it. So it's it's this constant. You, you, you look at a situation, you try to figure out what are the exposures? What are the alternatives for how do we address those exposures? You, you pick one or several, but then you monitor how are those exposures, um, how are those, those techniques uh, working in addressing the exposure that you have? So it's sort of, a, I mean, there is a risk management process. It is that four-step process. You know, you, you, you identify the exposures, you look at alternatives, you choose an alternative, and you monitor how you did. Um, and so that's what we do um, with our members every day. So, Well, I appreciate your comment about um uh, not being the department of no effectively, but instead being the part, the department of how can we do this safely or enable it safely to mitigate risk. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, the safest thing possible from a risk management perspective, uh, or maybe from a risk avoidance perspective, the answer is do nothing. Um, but unfortunately, if we do nothing, then all sorts of other problems happen. So we need to have a culture of do, uh, just a culture of do that is also simultaneously trying to avoid hazards and the consequence of doing things. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the idea of you know risk managers just want to say no. I mean, avoiding risk 
is not is is frequently not the best alternative. I mean, there are some risks you cannot avoid, and so how do you address that risk um, in the best way possible? You know, some, for example, there are um, there's the ability to transfer risk by transferring the operation. So the city needs to provide um, some sort of police service. It can provide it with its own police department and have all the liability associated with that, the driving, the arresting, the, you know, the incarceration, what have you, or the city can contract with uh, another public entity to provide that service. And to some degree, depending on how the arrangement is set up, they may be able to transfer that risk to the, to the party best able to control the risk. And that's really an important part of risk transfer is who's, who should be responsible for it? the one who's best able to control what's the operation. Now, that makes uh, total sense. And I, I guess within cities, is there typically a risk manager or where does this function fall within the inside city staff? Realizing that, of course, at least from your perspective as an authority, you partner with whoever that person is or that city to supplement some of their risk management efforts. Sure. I think most cities have someone who has risk manager in their title but it's usually not without a slash or two as well. You know, it may be the HR manager slash risk manager or the finance director slash risk manager. There are some, you know, some medium-sized, small to medium-sized cities actually do have a risk manager. Um, but typically among our membership, it is more of a slash risk manager type position, which means it, it, that's not necessarily a bad thing because they have an understanding of some of the other operations within the organization, as opposed to just being focused on risk management and, and being a bit of a silo. Um, and they also can can be viewed by some as you know being the department of no if they don't have another hat that they're wearing. So, um, so as the, uh, the insurance authority, we do definitely work with what, whatever model the, the member agency has. And uh, you know our goal is to really influence the person at the top of the organization, whether it be the city council or their, you know, highest hire, you know, the, the city manager uh, or chief executive, because that's where we feel is where the, uh, the culture of the organization really uh, begins. And if we can get the risk man, the, the city manager, uh, the chief executive to think about risk management on a regular basis, it just sort of flows through the organization and it, it makes our job a lot easier. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly being cognizant of risk and being cognizant of the need to manage it, not avoid it entirely, but just manage it is uh, needs to come from the top down. It needs to be kind of a part of every a part of every conversation. Um, uh, I guess uh, a related point. So again, we're talking about insurance, which I know for some people sounds very mundane. For me, it's always been interesting just because it is part and parcel of doing things as a public agency. So it touches all facets of of the actions and activities of local government, uh, which means that the authority itself has been pulled under the front lines of a lot of different really interesting public policy issues um, that you are connected to or helping identify strategies to mitigate risk. Uh, but fundamentally, I think for a lot of city council members and uh, other city staff folk, one of the questions is like, on an economic basis, like how big is this issue? How big is the issue of insurance and local government? And especially for John Q. Citizen who might be listening to this podcast, you know, they, they think of insurance like I pay my auto insurance and my home insurance bill. It's, you know, a relatively small percentage of my total cost of housing or total cost of ownership on a car. Uh, but for cities, like, what does that look like? How many, you know, on a percentage basis, the general fund dollars, what does that look like? Or maybe an absolute dollars for some example agencies, what does that typically cost? Yeah, I, I, I would say it's, it's difficult to use the uh, general fund budget because in some organizations, for example, if they are contracting for sheriff services, it's going to be a big number, but typically they will have transferred the risk over there. So it's, it's difficult to use that. We typically use uh, employee payroll as our measure of exposure. Uh, it's a pretty good uh, uh, equivalent to what's the exposure they're bringing in if they they have a big public works department, well, they're going to have a big payroll in public works. If they have a police department, it's going to have a, a police payroll. So uh, across our membership, the a rough average for liability coverage is about 5% of miscellaneous payroll. And for police, it's about 9% of police payroll. 
Um, it just has that higher exposure thanks to the uh, the things that they do, but also the things that the uh, the the jurors feel they do, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, which is a, a an, an entirely different conversation. But we might get to it at some point. Yeah. Um, so that's that's on the the liability side. Workers' comp is pretty comparable, actually. Um, maybe a little less on the the miscellaneous side, and a little higher on the on the public safety side, um, but still around that five to ten percent. So you know, if you've got a police department um, and their payroll, 10% of the payroll is being charged for liability coverage and 10% of the payroll is being charged for workers' comp coverage, that's 20% of their payroll. It's a big number. And that's why really we try to emphasize change the culture at the top to understand how can we reduce those, those risks. Yeah. And, and generally, payroll is a big chunk of the budget for local government, right? Sure. So um, sure. when we start talking about these kinds of percentages, it adds up. It is one of the more substantial line items that shows up on a on a city budget. And um, and these are real costs that are ultimately incurred by the agency and incurred by the taxpayers in those communities that help fund that agency. So, um, you know, this is not this is not just some little line item. This is a material line item that not only I think from my perspective and why it's important to talk about these things is. Uh, both financially it's material, but it's also directly speaks to some of the policies and, and public policy issues I alluded to that our public agencies are being called upon to address every day. So people need to be aware and understand these things. Sure. I mean, when when the state legislature passes a law that puts a, a new burden on local government for, uh, let's say, a presumption in workers' compensation, that's not just, you know, magically somebody in an insurance company somewhere is going to pay for that new uh, uh, presumed illness that came out of the public safety department, that's the citizen who has that public safety is now, you know, going to be dealing with that presumption. So it's, there, it's, there's no magic, uh, you know, money coming from the sky. I mean, even all these federal, federal relief funds that we're all about to get, hopefully the cities will get some this time. Um, you know, we, we all can't imagine that that's not uh, going to be coming back to each and every one of us in taxes someday. Right. But right now, we just need to, you know, try to solve a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think so a related point to that, and it, it does speak to something you were just hinting to, but it also is the case that, you know, if a city is sued for an issue, say it's a, a, a problem with a engineering on an intersection or a construction project and a lawsuit comes forth, somebody sues the city for an injury that took place, the jury says, oh yeah, man, the city really screwed up. We're gonna take them to the cleaners because it's the deep pocketed evil government. Um, When they go after that city and say, ding them for $15 million, and that $15 million might get a chunk of it paid out by uh, some Wall Street backed insurance company, but ultimately all those costs are gonna be trickled their way back into the pool or back into uh, the cost of insurance and local government and um, that ends up being a, a you know additional incremental cost uh, for local government in the state of California. Is that a, a fairly accurate description of that? That is that is that is spot on, and I, I wish we could get uh, people in the state legislature to understand that because every dollar that you know is awarded to uh, someone against uh, by a public entity, you know, against someone who gets injured, you know, there's certainly the need to. Uh, address the needs of those who've been injured and and fairly compensate them but you know it's not the lottery it's it's and it has become that it's become this you know really punishing uh agencies for which they may not in some cases have had a whole lot of responsibility for what uh, was the cause of the accident but because they had a little piece of the action um they get hammered and it comes back to, I mean, within our pool uh, right now, the liability program, every loss we take the first five million of. And so it's spread among all these members. Fortunately, there's a lot of people in it, but each loss we would take the first five million of. So if there's a, a, a $10 million loss, yes, we're going to have a half, uh, you know, half of it's going to be paid by insurance companies, but we're going to see our rates go up. And that first five million is going to be spread among all the members, and so is that now increased premium. So the the person who uh, 
is on the jury who awards all this money to punish the city and then goes home and complains that the street isn't being cleaned properly, I should needs to tie the two together that, well, the city can't afford to fund its street cleaning because it just paid a big bunch of money to someone who maybe didn't really deserve that much. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I um, and I, I, you know, I, I agree with your point. Like, there's uh, certainly if there's liability that that's there, and a, a reasonable amount of liability needs to be addressed, and something needs to be taken care of or harm that they weren't responsible for. Then, you know, we need to figure that stuff out. But it is not the giving tree. There is not a, a forever pile of money that local government is suddenly magically sitting on, and there are no consequences to these massive jury awards that do take place out there. I am um, one of the real challenges we have in California as well is, is we have joint and several liabilities. So if, for example, uh, one of our cities is uh, has an intersection and um, a drunk driver blows through the intersection and hits someone and there's a big loss, um, that drunk driver, um, their attorney will likely try to find things that are wrong with the uh, intersection. Though we all would look at it and say, it was the drunk driver who blew through the intersection. It wasn't that the intersection was designed wrong. But the way the law works is if there is a large settlement or you know whatever the size of the settlement uh, or, or the resolution of the, of the case, the city could be held to be responsible for almost all the payment because this drunk driver may have no assets, but the city has deep pockets and you know, we need to compensate the, the injured victim, but why does it need to come all from the city when it's the drunk driver that causes the problem? I mean, it's a bigger societal question of how do you deal with, you know, injured victims who should be compensated, but why punish someone who wasn't really responsible for it? So it's, it's a challenge in California, yeah. and it makes that joint and several liability and just Tort law in California in general makes buying excess and reinsurance much more expensive in California than it is in other states. And we have insurance carriers who just this year have decided we're not going to write in California for public entities anymore because of the growth of claims, the growth of, of lawsuits and, and, and jury awards. Um, it's it's a challenging it's a challenging another challenge in California living in California. <laughs> Well, it's, it kind of sounds like it's just adding another cost to government, like uh, some of the other you know costs that we generally incur here in the great state of California, whether it's exorbitantly high housing costs or high energy costs for uh, electric utilities or or other high cost uh, realities of living in the state of California. You know, it, it's funny. It's actually uh, this this growth or this this departure of of carriers is what created pools like ours in the first place. I mean, in the mid seventies. There had been some erosion to immunities that local governments had, and that caused the carriers to say, oh, I'm not sure I want to keep writing these guys. They're not as good a risk as we thought they were. And so it became exorbitantly expensive for local governments to buy insurance. And so you know, we were fortunate because our original members, uh, before they became the pool, uh, were mostly members of the Contract Cities Association. And California Contract Cities had you know, city managers committee and had all these different pieces of inf infrastructure to address challenges. And the challenge they addressed was this insurance crisis. And they, the city managers committee crafted together this pool idea and how can we self-insure and not be so reliant on the carriers. And so 40 years later, we're facing a similar situation, but now we at least have the pools in place to deal with it. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, our pool had a lower self-insured retention. We took the first two million of losses. Now we're taking the first five million because we've been fortunate to have conservatively managed our funds so that we can take more risk as a pool rather than having to pay more money for insurance premiums. Uh, we're able to, as a pool, uh, self-insure that instead of you know, paying somebody else. So if we have a good year, we don't spend the money. If we have a bad year, well, it could be more. If it's a really a, a number of large cases, you know, ultimately the carriers will step in. So, yeah, I was I was kind of reflecting on that point. I mean, that is the the genesis, of the founding of the authority was this um, kind of blow up in the insurance market back in the '70s that prompted this. So, uh, to your point, it's great to have that infrastructure now. Um, 
so we have you know kind of more strategy and a lot of more brains at the table working on these issues and working through the challenges and have more infrastructure. What brought you to the authority? How long have you been there and what, what were you doing before and why did you decide to join? Well, this week I'll be here uh, 26 years. Congratulations. Uh, which, <laughs> thank you. Um, so I was, uh, I started out uh, when I, when I left high school, I went into, uh, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in architecture and um, I took a political science class from the gentleman who was actually serving as mayor of the city of San Luis Obispo. And it was something that just, just kind of clicked with me. And I, and I liked the sort of the public sector, public service thing. Uh, shortly thereafter, I got an inter uh, an internship with the city manager by with a gentleman by the name of Paul Lansbury, who's one of my one of my mentors uh, in in the business. And uh, I spent a year interacting with the public safety departments and and the city council and other department heads, um, and just really got a feel for wow, cities really do a lot for people, and people don't necessarily recognize how much is being done for them by their city government. Mm -hmm. um, so Paul actually encouraged me to go to grad school. I, I'd already changed that architecture into political science. Uh, so I'm actually a scientist. Um, <laughs> so Paul, Paul encouraged me to go to grad school and I went to Syracuse University, the Maxwell School for a master's in public administration. I left there, I worked for the mayor's office there for, for quite some time. Um, and then I came out and my first job was with the city of Cerritos. I was working for a gentleman by the name of Gaylord Knapp and Art Gallucci. Now Art's still there. Um, but uh, Gaylord uh, was city manager, and he was one of the founding city managers of California JPIA. So when Southern California JPIA at the time. Um, so much of my work in the city manager's office was we, we frequently talked about risk management. I mean, I would go out to lunch with him and we'd drive around town and he'd be pointing stuff out. And I was supposed to write it down and get back to the departments to say, Hey, there's a you know a tree down over there, or there's a you know some sort of exposure that he would identify. He was just that kind of a thinker. Um, so I worked for I worked for Gaylord and Cerritos for a few years. Then I went to Signal Hill, which is also a member of the JPIA. I worked for a gentleman by the name of Gail, uh, of uh, Doug LaBelle. Um, and then I was climbing the the career ladder, growing up to be a city manager. And um, I was actually looking through jobs available and um, came across this, this advertisement for an assistant to the general manager at California JPIA. Um, and I knew the manager, it was Bill Holt. Bill had been city manager of Paramount for 15 or 17 years before uh, leaving that gig and going to the authority. And um, I knew him um, distantly and thought, well, you know, I know a little bit about California JPIA and I've always been a bit of a risk manager at heart. You know, my mother instilled in me, you know, don't ride skateboards, don't go surfing, don't run, you know, all those all those things that, you know, most people really got to enjoy as a kid. You know, uh, for me, it was, you know, don't do that, don't do that. And, uh, you know, wrap yourself in bubble wrap, et cetera. But um, so I, I applied for the job and interviewed. Uh, uh, my first interview was with a gentleman by the name of Pat West former city manager of, of Long Beach and a long-term friend ever since then um, from that interview or actually before then, but uh, I, I got the job and um, it's, it's just been a phenomenal experience for me. It's, it's the ability to apply um, a discipline that unfortunately, and this is something we're trying to do and changing the culture of cities and, and local agencies, um, but really, to apply risk management and play that role that some city managers or city staff um, aren't that comfortable with. We uh, personally, as well as within our organization, we really uh, have developed an expertise in risk management and, and we are that trusted uh, source, if you will, for risk management information. Um, so I was there for a few years and, and, and then Bill decided he was going to retire and uh, uh, the executive committee asked him what they should do as far as a recruitment. And they said, he said, well, just appoint John. And they said, okay, so what are we gonna do to replace John? I mean, that was my interview. Uh, <laughs> it was great, um, but I've loved it. I mean, it's really, it's been, uh, I've been the CEO there since uh, 2002. Um, and it's just been 
an amazing experience to have, to have grown with the organization, to change the way we we operate. It's just been it's been a great time. That's uh, quite well, quite a history, and also just a dedicated service to a single organization for that duration is also impressive, John. So. I would imagine you've just accumulated a huge, huge amount of institutional knowledge and obviously working with over 100 local government agencies throughout the state, you have you see a lot of stuff, right? You and your risk management uh, professionals there at the authority see a ton of things. Um, it, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Sometimes we'll uh, we'll run into to someone, and uh, you know, a city council member, and, and they'll they'll ask if they've ever if we've ever seen anything like what they're doing. And it's like, yeah, unfortunately, we have. <laughs> <laughs> or fortunately, we have. <laughs> um, I guess uh, one, one thing to talk about the authority and, you know, full disclosure to the audience, too, that uh, Trebuffy Smith does a ton of work with the authority. Uh, so we've got to know you very well over the last couple of years. But um, uh, uh, and I happen to be the co-founder and president of Trebuffy Smith. So that's that's the linkage here. But the. Um, uh, <sighs> I guess a, a couple things. The authority, there are, as you mentioned before, there are dozens of risk management pools in the state of California. It strikes me, and I'm not saying this because I want you to, you know, um, somehow ding other risk pools, but you guys have a particular emphasis on educational resources and access to kind of drive that culture of risk management. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, well, I think the, the there's two ways two ways to look at it. First. Um, in dealing with your risk management program as a public agency, there's two philosophical ways you can go. There's the, I just want to have a transactional relationship where I buy my insurance and they pay the claims. And then there's more of our model, which is these people are our partners and they are going to help us to prevent the claims in the first place. I mean, we truly want to be a risk management organization, not a claims management organization. We want to prevent the losses. You know, if you can prevent an employee from getting hurt, all the better. If you can prevent, you know, a 75-year-old woman from tripping on a sidewalk and, and breaking a hip, I mean, even if you could pay for it, you're not going to make them better. And right. so you just want to prevent the losses as best you can. Um, and then if you do have losses, we try to make sure that we manage them with the the best people and the best attorneys and, and all those sorts of things. So, uh, but it truly is about, um, in our view, it's that hands-on working with the member in partnership, training, training, training. When I started with the authority, we did three training programs a year. We probably touched 200 people. You know, we had a care of the back class, a contracts class and a safe driving class. I mean, let's be generous and say it was 500 people. Last year, we offered over a thousand classes, touching tens of thousands, over 50,000 member employees, whether it was face to face, uh, on the computer, uh, at a conference, at an academy. I mean, it's just about putting those resources into and and showing the value you place in those employees in educating them and giving them the opportunity to learn. I mean, one of our one of our course uh, schedules or course lines is in management skills. We have you know, an entry-level manager position, a mid-level manager uh, academy, uh, a higher-level manager academy, all the way to the city manager academy. So that, and all of them address different things that are about management, management and managing people more than just risk management because if you've got people that are doing their jobs right, risk management flows from that. And so, you know, the the supervisory practices and, and helping with those sorts of things. And, you know, if someone's managing their people right and treating them with dignity and respect, the likelihood of getting claims for employment practices is significantly reduced. So that's something that we really value is the, the training aspect of it. Um, we spend a lot of money on it, uh, and we, as an organization, really feel that it's super valuable for the member agents. It's worth every every penny we spend on it. So, yeah, and and you, there are other programs, there are other pools that that offer um, training stipends. So you know, 
your agency gets $10,000 a year for training or, you know, what have you. Ours is, it's, it's not free, but it's included in the cost of coverage. And it's as many people as you, if you could send everybody five times, we would love that. So it's really about getting that, that information out. And it, it changes the perspective. And one of the other things, I mean, we have our training side of the house, but we also have our risk management side of the house. We have seven risk managers who are in the field working regionally from their homes typically. And they have this group of members, this portfolio members that they work day in and day out with. And we are constantly working with them to develop better policies, identify exposures, um, just really working with them to to be part of uh, their team, be an extension of their staff. One of the things that as we've looked at prospective members, we will always go out and do a risk management evaluation and say, on behalf of our existing members, we want to make sure that you're worthy, if you will. Um, and so we go through and we check and look at agreements and policies and procedures and facilities and things like that. And we then present a report to the city manager uh, or the chief executive. And often that comes up when I'm at a council meeting as they're trying to decide what pool to be with. And last year in particular, there were a couple of cities where you know, there was a presentation by their existing pool, and then there was our presentation, and we presented this risk management evaluation, and, and council members would ask, well, why didn't you guys tell us about all this stuff that wasn't working right? Well, because philosophically, they don't spend the money on the risk management stuff as much as we do. We concentrate on trying to prevent the risks rather than making the best insurance transaction. Uh, so it's 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 philosophy. It's it's you know there's different ways to skin the cat. Um, we just like our way. No offense to cats. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, and, and I agree. I'm not, like I said, I'm not trying to pick on any other particular approach as much. I just have a declared statement about how you guys view it differently. And I, I kind of think about those regional risk managers um, as as you refer to the extensions of staff, right? And particularly when you describe a lot of your typical members whoever the risk manager is has a slash after their name with other roles. So they aren't spending every day, every waking moment thinking about risk. But if they have a member of your team who's sitting there at their side, helping them think about risk for that five hours a week, they get to think about risk, then it makes them much more uh, impactful in the organization and really empowers them to be more effective risk managers when it's just a slice of their overall job. Really true. And, and you know, as much as it, it, what you said is true, I, I really do want them to be thinking about risk all the time. Even if it is, if only if they do get five hours a week. We really want to do it, want to do it all the time. Yes, fair, fair enough. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, you talked a lot about too about kind of top down within the organization. So, either for council members or city managers, what are like three mantras or things when it comes to risk management that you would just want to inject into their brains or have them think about? I think the the first thing would be slow down, um, and, and slow down and think about risk management. I'm not sure if that's one thing or two things, but really think about the liabilities associated with um, what what they're about to do. You know, we, we do a, a newly elected officials academy, uh, much like our our management academy uh, line. But the newly elected officials academy at the very end, I, I share. You know some thoughts that I've garnered over the the couple of days of being together with these these newly electeds, and one of the things I almost always share is, you know, when you look at your staff report coming from your city manager and your finance director, and it says you know financial implications, I really always want them to add one that says risk management implications, because they should really think about the risk management implications of of what they're doing, the liability impl uh, implications of what they're doing. Um, so I think that's probably, you know, that that bent, if you will, of thinking about risk. And the other is, as you're thinking about that, is there a way to have the other guy responsible for it? So making sure your contracts are transferring risk properly to those who are best able to control that risk. You know, if if you can have the uh, the, the street project contractor 
provide proper insurance. It's naming the city as an additional insured. And there's an unfortunate accident out there because, you know, something happened. If you can immediately have their insurance take care of it, it's so much better than the heartburn that the city is going to go through to have to deal with things. Um, so I guess slow down, you know, think about risks and, and liabilities, and then, uh, you know, help the other guy, you know, make them pay. And, I, and one of the things with contractors is often you'll, we, we recommend in our risk management training a certain level of insurance, you know, limits that we need them, the, the cities or agencies to have. Um, and sometimes we get pushback from the contractors and the contractors feel like, oh, it's just going to be so expensive. It's like we're suggesting that you have the insurance that we're requiring because we want to protect you also. And they need to understand that it's not just about protecting the city or the agency. It's about protecting the contractor because bad things do happen out there on construction yeah. sites. And you want the carriers uh, to, to, to carry that burden rather than, than the contractor. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, my firm contracts with over a hundred local government agencies in the state of California. And what we do is relatively low risk, right? It's communications work and, uh, strategy and website stuff. And so we're not out swinging hammers and moving cranes. Um, otherwise our insurance costs would be much higher, uh, but we've had to adhere to all those standards. We have training but, for that. We have, that? Training. we have training for those things. Okay, perfect. So, but what what I think about when I, you know, when we go to sign these contracts or we have to up our up our um, insurance coverages to meet the requirements or whatever insurance pool they're in, um, I do think about for that contracting model in particular, and we do a lot of work in the contract cities uh, kind of membership, is the sheer volume of risk that's been transferred to the contracting entities that they work with, right? So, um, that is kind of a one of the hidden uh, aspects of contracting for services that. Um, I'm not sure it gets enough fanfare or recognition. It's just the sheer volume of risk that has been kind of split apart and put into other pools, right, or put onto other parties and taken out of the, the insurance coverage risk that cities are having to absorb in some of those costs, which, as we talked about earlier, are pretty substantial. So it's, it's another aspect of the contracting for services model that can be, I think, in my mind, compelling. Obviously, I'm self-interested. Like, we contract with cities for that, but it is definitely a cost savings for public agencies. Sure. And, and it's, it's a cost savings and, and it's also, you know, it allows um, more specialized management in some cases where, you know, as city employees or as municipal employees, you know, and, and I was one, you know, we're dealing with a lot of different stuff. And if you can find somebody that just does street lane striping, they're probably going to do it really well. And you can transfer the risk to them and have their insurance be responsible in case something goes wrong out there. But you'll also have a potentially a better product because that's what they do day in and day out. Yeah, which, which means they could also be experts at mitigating their own street striping risk, yeah. right? So, so yeah. they'll have an expertise level that you couldn't reasonably expect a city staff person to have in that case. Right. Uh, all right, so we're gonna start to bring bring it to a close here with a couple things, but I'd like to hit with some fast and furious. First of all, what's any kind of new priorities for 2021? Obviously, where 2020 was all pandemic all the time. Uh, not that 2021 isn't also related to all pandemic all the time, but what are the big priorities that you're looking at for the authority in 2021? Well, I think for the authority, our, our big uh, our big priorities are ensuring that we're still able to connect with the members. Uh, we are still in a uh, remote work environment at our office. Um, we have a few folks that go in from time to time, but largely we've all been uh, been home since March, and uh, uh, for the most part haven't skipped a beat. So one thing that did suffer, of course, was our in-person training. Uh, and since the uh, you know everybody went home, we have developed and continue to develop some really good uh, virtual training opportunities. Um, and, and I think whether it's the, the web-based training that's, that's canned or that's, you know, use at any time, access at any time, um, that's improved, but we've also got classroom, virtual classroom trainings where we have a live trainer, um, who's presenting it live. Uh, so that's a, that's a new experience that we're working through. Of course, last year we did our, our virtual risk management educational forum, Resilient Together, which was a great learning experience and, you know, really hit some, some high points 
uh, and, and I mean, we had over 500 participants where mm -hmm. our highest previously had been 350. So now we didn't have them captured for, for three days. We had people that were in and out of the, of the conference, but at least they were able to participate. Um, so we've got, you know, trying to make the training connection and engagement um, better than, than it was through part of this past year. Um, so that's something that we're work, really working toward. And the other is, is the risk management, you know, being able to work with the members face to face and, and observing all the proper protocols is something that we're really looking forward to, to rolling out in, in full steam. Um, I think the, uh, the ability to do a drive by and, and look at things is it's just not quite enough. And so we're really looking to, to get, uh, more person to person. Um, we also have our, you know, we're still in the, in the air a little bit as to our risk management educational form. We're currently scheduled to be down in Carlsbad, uh, in September. Um, but you know, we just don't know. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a still a game time decision, but, uh, it's going to have to be before game time, but, uh, we're going <laughs> to, it'll probably end up having uh, some sort of a hybrid nature to it. If we're able to do any of it live right? Uh, in person, I should say. So. Yeah, I would say every, I mean, throughout local government, any of these regional gatherings or statewide gatherings, whether it's for MMANC or MMASC or CAPIO or the league, certainly, they're all struggling with the urgency and desire to get back in person. Because I think for many of us in the local government sector, and just as humans in general, we love getting face to face and seeing people. And we obviously have risks we're trying to mitigate and avoid uh, no pun intended with this podcast, uh, but we are trying to, you know, address some of these issues and and uh, not unnecessarily expose ourselves or further COVID, the COVID crisis that we're facing. Sure. And I guess speaking of the COVID crisis, let me let me transition real quick to another question too, just because it seems apropos. What, um, how how did the authority kind of modify? Um, maybe your content services or help your agencies respond as the COVID-19 pandemic started to take hold, right? Because that, that in and of itself introduced all sorts of risk questions that uh, I'm sure you had members coming to you to talk about. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a, um, you know, for everyone, it was upending. Um, but we saw the opportunity to really be that thought leader that our members could rely on uh, to give them good information to kind of cull through all of the information that was out there because you know we're dealing our our connections beyond our our member agencies are with insurance carriers who are dealing with in lots of risk management types and we were able to call a lot of information together into um uh, a specific page on our uh, our website uh, and we provided uh, information in our newsletter uh, we created a, a a team if you will um for Dealing with COVID response, uh, we were one of the first ones to address the uh, um, the private use of public rights of way for the little parklets or, or you know dining areas outside of restaurants and how to properly do that. We really tried to be hearing about things, you know, with our ear to the ground, hear about those things as they're starting to percolate, and then really trying to get in front of it to say. This is all well and good, but don't forget risk management. You know, this <laughs> is what we always say: don't forget risk management. Um, but I, and many times the the members were looking to us because they weren't forgetting risk management, but they didn't know what the answer was, and so they'd call. Uh, and so we were very much engaged with with the members across the board with that. Um, you know, it as we've all become more used to this virtual type environment, we've come to realize that. There's a lot that can be done. And sometimes you can be even more effective and, and efficient because you can call together a quick meeting to talk about a specific issue. You know, so if there were changes to the, the labor code regarding, you know, workers' compensation and COVID, we could get a quick meeting together and, and you know, we didn't have to schedule it for next Tuesday and have everybody show up at the office, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I've, I've been really, I mean, it's amazing. The, the people at our office, I mean, the, the people on our team, they are so passionate about what they do. It is, it's, uh, I'm, I feel so fortunate to have uh, all these folks that uh, have this passion for service and really have real relationships with our member agencies and the, and the people in our agencies. So uh, they, they recognize an opportunity uh, as our staff to, to, to serve a need where there was a void 
you know, what can we do to help provide good information about uh, the coronavirus and, and, you know, pandemic response? Well, it's particularly given just the focus you guys have on educational resources, like it was built into your DNA to do that. And then you faced a very dynamic environment. I'd also, so you were, you know, uh, for the authority, I think it's it was just built into your mantra of how you're going to operate. And it literally posed a challenge, but an opportunity for you to do what you do best. The second thing I, I kind of chew on is earlier on this conversation, you talked about not being the department of no, but being the department of kind of getting to yes safely or reasonably. And in a dynamic environment with what was being thrown at local governments, uh, you know, they were being asked to do things that were inherently innovative or new or different. Um, and it required very timely kind of response and moving faster than normally they would. Um, but having a partner to help them get through that must have been hugely advantageous for them. Yeah, and I think that's really a, a, a validation of our regional risk manager uh, deliver, risk management delivery model. Having those partners that they know that they can call and they've got their cell phones, they you know they can they can get there quickly or they can be readily available to discuss things. I think that's been that that was one of the the most important things uh, at the beginning was being able to have that the member agencies had someone they could call and they would be able to get a good answer uh, to their to their challenge. Awesome. All right, John, well, I want to um, wrap this conversation up real quick. So let me, uh, first of all, how would people want to, if they want to ask you some more about just risk management in general and local government challenges and some of these issues or find out how to get access to resources at the California Joint Powers Insurance Authority, what's the best way for them to either contact the authority or contact you? Well, probably the best place to go is going to be to cjpia.org, our website. It's It's an amazing website, all kinds of good stuff on it. Uh, it's got contact information for everybody on staff. You can uh, email info at cjpia.org, and that will get directed to the right person as well. Um, but uh, we'll also be at, uh, at virtual conferences coming up that you might be attending. So uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to see some folks there as well. Awesome. Well, and that's today's report. My thanks to John for joining us. Uh, from the whole PC public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you very much for your time today. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.